Please join me in prayer. Jesus, your words are a tall order. They are something that you must make real by your power and by your presence here. You are the risen one. You're the one that reigns even now. And your word brings death to life. And you know how much we need that this evening. Would you please work in our midst? And we thank you in advance for doing so. In Christ's name, amen. What does it really mean to be righteous? What does God really want from us? What does it really mean to follow the law of God? These are the questions that we have been turning over for the last couple months through the Sermon on the Mount, hearing Jesus' contrasting point of view with his day, but also our day. And it's been a journey like ascending a mountain. Here we are on the Sermon on the Mount, a figurative mountain. And we started with the Beatitudes, those uh, countercultural characteristics that are produced in someone when they get connected to God through Jesus, when God's life begins to live in us. And then we've been in the commands, and those commands have really been an outgrowth. So in that way, our journey hasn't been directly up a mountain, but more like circling and rising so that we can look down at points and go, oh, that's where we were. And last week, we were getting closer and closer to the peak, and now this week we hit the peak, and there's a flag in the mountain or a cross, And on it is a word, and the word is love. The word is love. And for those that get to know the God of the Bible, that's not a surprise. As one of the apostles would say, the essence of God is love. But one of the most stunning views from that mountain of love is how God loves his enemies. It's the most breathtaking view. And it's the one that Jesus brings us to tonight how he ends this section. The deepest, most demanding righteousness is that which requires someone, gives them the ability to love their enemy. And when that has happened in someone, a huge transformation has taken place. There was an old theologian in Germany, a man named Adolf Schlatter, and he said this, when love no longer has to wait on the performance or the response of another an immense transformation has taken place. When we are able to love someone, irrespective of their response to us, something supernatural has happened. Something divine has happened. And notice I didn't say put up with or tolerate, but to actually love. And last week we talked about what that's like when there are isolated acts of evil against you. But what does it look like when you have settled hostility against you. That's what I want to look at this evening. Through three questions, who are we supposed to love, how are we to love them, and why are we to love them? Who are we supposed to love, how are we to love them, and why are we to love them? Now, uh, the first question may seem like a no-brainer. Well, we're supposed to love our enemies, but our enemies are not always God's enemies. Uh, We may have an enemy, it's simply someone that blocks our goals. We make someone an enemy who has more talent than we do. Uh, For instance, if you've ever seen the film Amadeus, that's Salieri. 
Mozart is his enemy and God is his enemy. Why? Because he simply has more talent. In the church, if someone differs with theology or practice, oftentimes they'll be labeled an enemy or a heretic. And we have to understand here that uh, the enemies that Jesus is talking about here are God's enemies, not just people that are on our bad list. And we also have to understand that maybe the hostility that we're receiving from someone is justified. It could be that it's just opposition to our selfishness and injustice. So we have to begin, even before we get to the question of who is our enemy, we have to look within. Jesus really calls us to look within. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German minister who resisted the Nazis and was eventually executed, said this, When confronting an enemy, you need to think first about your own enmity with God. One of the definitions of maturity in the Bible is becoming more aware of your offenses towards people rather than theirs against yours. This becomes the beginning point, and so it helps us to sift out who truly is an enemy. But Jesus says there will be enemies. For those that become his followers, as the world has hated me, so they will hate you, uh, resenting the exclusive loyalty that followers give to Jesus, resenting their devotion to his commands, resenting the imitation of his life. Jesus says there will be enemies. And he calls his people to focus and gather all their energy to love these people, the enemies of God, enemies that God's people have. Now, how are we supposed to do that? And I think immediately as we think about there, there's a question and an objection that comes to mind. And that is, well, I, I've read the Bible before, and it seems to me that God is pretty harsh on his enemies and pretty quick to judge them. What about that? Well, I, I think if you actually read the long story of the Bible and not just hop into maybe a chapter or two where you see God's judgment, I, I would say you actually find the opposite. You and I, where you and I would lose it within five minutes or five hours with an enemy, you see God going for decades, God going for centuries before he brings judgment upon his enemies. And maybe one of the best people to speak to this is a former persecutor and enemy, the Apostle Paul, who was Saul. And what does he say about God's patience? He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent. But God's mercy flowed to me. His unlimited patience came to me. That's the perspective of a persecutor. And I would say anybody that's become a follower of Jesus knows what he's talking about there. You tend to go, I, I can't believe the unlimited patience that God has shown in my hostility toward him. You find that over and over. Oftentimes there's years of aggression from very wicked, wicked groups. I mean, wicked by any culture standards. For instance, the Canaanites of whom it said even their own land would, would, would want to vomit them out. Degrading people sexually, child sacrifice. You find God bearing patiently with people. And even with Israel's holy wars, we have to understand that that was a unique object lesson. It was a limited thing, a limited scope, where God on earth was showing sort of an inbreaking of what judgment against evil's like. It wasn't something that was to continue or be repeated. So things like the Crusades and Inquisitions misunderstood what the Bible was talking about. And we also have to go back to where we were last week when we, we said love doesn't preclude vengeance and judgment. 
In fact, God's love at some point will have to come against evil. And so with all these qualifications, we have to understand that as God moves against evil, it's much different than the way we often move against evil. And even so, with all of that, you never find in the Bible God commanding Israel to hate their enemies. And rather, what you find in the law of Moses is love. Go to Leviticus 19. And God calls Israel not only to love the neighbor, but the stranger. In fact, he says you need to love the outsider just like you would love a native son. You go to Exodus, it says you even have to be kind to the animals of your enemies. You know, you got, the oxen wanders off, you can't... <clears throat> there, you know, you have to lead them back to the enemy. Even treating their livestock with respect. And this is part of the problem that Jesus is addressing. The religious leaders of that day took that law of love and basically reduced it to only those within Israel. And Jesus broadens it to a place that was very provocative. He said, no, your love, even to enemies, must be like that. And he gives us two ways to do that. How to. The first one is through prayer. The second one is with others. The first one is through prayer. He says, I tell you, you must pray for your enemies. He puts a finer point on it and says, those who actively persecute you. This is what you find both Jesus and Stephen, the first martyr, doing. As they're being killed, they're praying for people. Prayer is one of these things. If you're genuinely going to pray for someone, you have to let them into your heart. You've got to let them in there. In fact, prayer is a great indicator about how you feel about someone. If you're unsure, you know, have I forgiven this person? Do I really accept them? How do I regard them? See how you feel about praying for them. Because authentic prayer always demands that we let people into our hearts. And, and some of the great uh, you know, folks throughout history, I think, that understood this, they would say what you're doing in prayer is you sit there and you struggle so that you might feel something of God's love for your enemy. And at that point, your, your love uh, breaks into bud. For them. And at that point, something significant has happened. Chrysostom, who was a preacher in the fourth century, said, There are these ascending steps when you love your enemy. There's the idea of not retaliating, there's the idea of being willing to have uh, wrong done to you, there's the idea of doing good, but the highest step is prayer. And Bonhoeffer said, Actually, in praying for our enemy, what we do is we go side to side by the person that despises us and we plead to God for them. In loving your enemy, you go side to side with the person that despises you and you plead to God for them. This is what Abraham did for Sodom. And it's the first beginning step that Jesus gives us. One small step for mankind, huge step for the advancement of God's kingdom. And one of the ways this happens actually in a worship service is the prayer of intercession. We have it in our service where we pray for ourselves and the world. It's a chance for the church to love its enemies, to bring them before God and plead for their well-being. And that reminds us of the second point, that we not only love our enemies through prayer, we love in community with one another. All the other commands you find in singular here, this one is in plural. Jesus is speaking to the group of people. And it's such a a wonderful counter to our normal practice. When we feel like there's an enemy against us, typically what we do is we will gather with a group of people that we know that are for us, we'll garner support and say, I want you to hate them like I hate them. (laughs) Right? Your enemy becomes my enemy. 
I'm opposed to them as well. And God says, actually, what I want you to do is hold each other accountable with the opposite. And that is not to fall into bitterness. I want you to hold one another accountable to love your enemy. But you do it in community together. The Oxford martyrs back in the 16th century in Britain, uh, Latimer, Hugh Latimer and Thomas Ridley and Cramner, Nicholas Ridley and Thomas Cramner, when they were burned at the stake, uh, you know, there was a little dialogue that happened between two of them, one of which said, play the man. But there they were together. When you go back to the early persecution of Christians, there's a story of a mistress of a household and her slave being put to death for their faith, standing side to side. Jesus is saying to his community, you face enemies together. Paul was left for dead. What happens? His people come around him and lift him up. You will not be able to love your enemy by yourself. You know, all of us are too tempted. Community is what helps us to move forward. But why? We've talked a little bit about who are our enemies, how we love them, but why? Why must followers love their enemies? Let me give you three uh, different things here. First of all, because it's a sign that we are true, true children of God. Jesus says, love your enemies to be sons of the Most High. You know the old saying, the apple don't fall too far from the tree. Well, the sons of the devil are those that would be liars and murderers and hatred. And the sons of the Most High, they love enemies like God loves his enemies. The unique son, Jesus says, those that are my true brothers and sisters are those that will love their enemies. And while it's not the way we become children of God, we don't, you don't love your way into God's family. But once after you've been loved into God's family, it's one of the signs it's actually one of the doorways, too. When you begin to understand that you were a rebellious orphan and God came and sought you out and loved you, it, it gives something, something becomes born. There becomes an energy there that we didn't have before. And there's a promise that seems to be attached to it that Jesus is saying here. Somehow, in John 14, he says, those that uh, obey my commands will have a personal closeness with God. And he seems to be intimating here that those that love their enemies will have a special experience of the Father's love. They will know him in a unique way. I wonder if this is what the Apostle Paul was after in the book of Philippians, where he erupts in joy about his relationship with Jesus and he says, I want to know Christ. And then he goes on to say, and I want to share in his sufferings. I wonder if Paul was experiencing something really precious and sweet with God through his suffering and enduring the pain of his enemies. It's not only a sign of sonship, it's also a proof that there's something supernatural happening in our lives. You and I can pull a lot off without God, so to speak. You can be moral without God doing anything special in your life. You can be religiously disciplined. You can like people that like you. Jesus talks about that. But for God to do something, for you to love your enemy, something special has to be happening. One person has said that you return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. This is what Jesus is talking about when he's saying the tax collectors, the people that actually sold themselves out to Rome... Jewish folk, and on the backs of their countrymen made money. They know how to like those of their kind. The Gentiles who were even clueless about God, they know how to love. 
They know how to love those of their own race and their own nation and those that trade favors. Just like you may be good, I may be good at loving our families and our friends and those from our particular geography or those that share our politics or those that share our theology, those that are of our same gender. We may be loving those people well, and Jesus would say there isn't anything special about that. There's nothing special about that. But there is something special about a person that can love their enemies. Love in a way that is very different. And in that way, Jesus' followers are called to break the code of the culture. They are called to break the status quo and love in a contrary and nonconformist way. Uh, Frederick Bruner says this, and I, I love how he says this. This contrariness, this nonconformity, is the only true revolutionary and subverting activity in the world. All else by name of revolution is just acting back to others what has been acted out toward oneself. Christians are to be the world's counter-reactionaries. Counter-reactionaries in the way that they love. And I think it, it, there's many ways we do it. Two ways we do it. One is actually seeking peace of enemies. In, in ancient Israel, when you met someone, you greeted them with shalom. That meant peace to you. Jesus is saying, I want that to move out into the world. But not only what we say to enemies, the way we say it. We live in a time in history where if someone disagrees with you, if they disagree with you about, if you disagree about their position on the war or health care or gay marriage or a number of issues, then it's okay for me to despise, write a mocking editorial, and basically dismiss you. It's my right to be able to do that sort of thing. And Jesus forbids his disciples from that and says, You must love your enemies, and they must know by the way that you seek their peace and the way that you respect them. It's a nonconformist love. It's a contrary love. We talked about it last week, the sort of love that would go a mile with someone that forces them to go a mile and afterwards say, I'll go another mile with you. It's a love that is unnatural. It's supernatural proof that God is in the life and in the house of the church. It's something that uh, we feel weak before. Sometimes uh, when folks come to this passage, you may have heard this before, and there's actually a little argument about the Greek word that says, well, what it's really saying is we have to like people and not love them. Sorry. <laughs> I wish I could tell you that. It's really not. Are we supposed to love teaching or love the deeds or the character? No, but called to love an enemy. Why? It leads to the second point, because God does. Because God does. Jesus says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. There's a similar thing the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 14. He's preaching to a bunch of Gentiles, and he says to them, Do you see? He's trying to help them connect creation with who God is and how he is acting. And he says, He's giving you rain, and he's giving you fruitful seasons to satisfy you. If you think about that, it's staggering. A government may treat an enemy POW by giving them food and water. And maybe they'll give them luxuries because they want to manipulate them and get into information. But, but what Paul is saying here is that God does this thing unconditionally out of love. And he doesn't say God just gives you the, the scraps. He's saying that he's given you the abundance of the earth. And what amazes me, it says one of the reasons he does it is to satisfy you with gladness. Another translation, uh, translation merriment. 
Who in the world treats their enemies like this? Who in the world would say to their enemies, listen, I want you to have the earth. I want you to have the abundance of the earth. I want you to have the wineries. I want you to have the sun. I want you to have good times with your friend. I want you to have song. I want you to have art. I even want you to have some taste of joy. I want you to have some deep satisfaction. This is what God is saying. And he goes one farther in the gospel. He says, take the rain, take the earth, take my son. Take my prince of glory for your atonement and for your sin. And this is the picture Jesus gives before the church, the way that they love their enemies. As if you were standing behind bars watching your captor eat a fine meal with wine and wiping their chin, and your response would be, thank you, God, that you've given them a feast today. Thank you that you've been kind to them. It's astounding. So that the kindness of God might wash over them and they might experience what a follower of Jesus experienced, and that is God who loves his enemies. Where do you need to start with someone like that? Would it be possible? I, I mean, I, let's be honest. We struggle to do that with people that are friends. <laughs> we envy our friends. We struggle with the people that are opponents, but we're talking about God saying, your enemies, I want you to want that for them. It's mind-blowing. And why it leads to the last point? Because love is perfection. Love is perfection. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Sometimes there's a debate that says, well, should this be translated, be perfect or be mature? Uh, frankly, you know, the verse saying, be mature as God doesn't help me. I mean, that's, that's as bad as be perfect, right? It's not like that's any easier. Being as mature as God. And anyway, it's really missing the point behind what, what they're saying there. Not so much what is perfect and mature. Let's look behind that. Moses said, what's the end of the law? Jesus said, what's the climax of all the virtues? We're back on the mountain. We're back on with the flag. It's, it's love. That's what Jesus is after here. I want love to be your end goal. I don't want anything else to be your end goal. And it's undeserved love. This may be why Luke records the version of this by saying, be merciful to, to others as your Father is merciful to you. The undeserved love of God in your life. And that is a big paradigm shift. Because while we're sitting there trying to think about what does perfect and mature like, basically trying to get it right, God, rather, is saying, actually, what I want you to get is my undeserved love so that you might flow it out to people. What your, your, your enemy doesn't need you, so to speak, to get it right. Your enemy doesn't need your perfectionism. Your enemy doesn't need your self-righteous moralism. Mine, too. Take this inclusive. What Jesus wants your enemy to taste of is the undeserved love that you've tasted of. That's what he's after. And this last statement is both a command and a promise. That the, the verb, when he says, uh, you must be perfect, that's a future tense verb. And so you could translate it this way, you will be perfect. And in that he's saying, you must be perfect. But he's also saying, cheer up, you will be perfect. Those that began, God who began a good work in you will bring it to maturity, to perfection, to completion. 
But those that get linked to God through Jesus, you will be perfect. And that means every time you and I love an enemy, it's a down payment on the future. Every time you and I love an enemy, it's like a trumpet of the victory to come. Every time you love an enemy, you are closer to it. To the day when the enemies within and the enemies without will be gone. And love will reign on the earth as it should be. It will rule you and it will rule me. Hallelujah for that day. Let's love our enemies. Let's pray. Father, as we began, this is such a tall order, but we have great hope about the life of Jesus. Uh, We have no hope or pretense in ourselves that we can do this. We struggle to love the people that we love. But with your life inside us, we know that you can do that, and you have done it in the lives of people. Would you please do that in this community, and that we would love this city. In Christ's name, amen.